Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. As much as there have been strides and advances in dealing with racism in the U.S., we're still far away from the picture painted by Martin Luther King in his I Have a Dream speech. We've tried a lot of approaches, but the problem seems to persist notwithstanding. Today's Spirit in Action guest, Jennifer Harvey, is professor of religion at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, and she's been tackling the issue from many directions for years, and she has a solution to propose. Let's raise our children properly equipped for anti-racism through race-conscious parenting. Jennifer's new book is Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America, and it combines the best elements of both the philosophical and practical tools needed for the task. This goes beyond racial colorblindness or diversity training and encourages us to wrestle with the inner attitudes and truths that make the cure to racism so challenging. Jennifer Harvey joins us by phone from Des Moines, Iowa. Jennifer, thank you so very, very much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. I'm glad to be with you. You're in Des Moines, right? I am indeed, yes. And where do you originate from? Where's where's home back where Jennifer Harvey came to Iowa from? Well, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, so I really think of Colorado as home. But I spent about 11 to 12 years in New York City before I moved to Des Moines. So New York is not my home, but I also kind of came to Des Moines by way of Brooklyn. So that was a big transition in my life, too. I think we'll put something out there for people to look at right up front. You teach at Drake University. You're a professor, right? You're educating minds, but you're also in the Department of Religion and Philosophy. And so you are also talking about ethics, morality, and you have a degree as an American Baptist minister. That's from Union, right? That's right, in New York City, yep. Right. So could you lay out up front, so people know, where your motivation, your mission comes from in writing a book like Raising White Kids? Yeah, so my background, the religious piece is critical because I came out of a conservative religious community, but one that taught me God so loves the world. And I deeply believe that. I still believe that. And by the time I hit my late teenage years, early 20s, what I understood was God so loves the world. And if God so loves the world, that also means God is a God of justice. And in my early 20s at Union, thinking about what justice meant and what it meant to live a life of justice, I was taught and came to understand and started to wrestle with what it means to be a white U.S. American who also recognizes the pervasive violence of racial injustice and needs to figure out how to be a strong, reliable ally and participant in creating racial justice and working for anti-racism, even though I'm also white. And so I've been doing that work since my early 20s, and I'm almost 50 now, so for a very long time. And, you know, in the last 10 years, I became a mother. And I started to realize that while I had learned how to do racial justice activism, I learned to 
talk about and think through and work on the particular challenges of being white relative to anti-racism work and sort of spend time and energy developing some of those in my own life and with others, I realized I didn't necessarily know how to talk about anti-racism with a three-year-old or a four-year-old. And I didn't know, okay, when do I start talking about issues like police brutality with my children? And I I began to realize I wasn't the only white adult who was committed to justice and who had those same questions. And so I found myself wanting to both think about my own work and life as a parent, but also share that journey with other parents who I was in conversation with about these questions about raising children for justice. It seems like this is a very needed discussion to have, because while there's lots of books and opinions about white supremacy, morality, racism, how we teach our children and how we form the next generation, we really need some practical guidance on this. Uh, You point out in the book, Jennifer, that some of the ways that we've tried, like, you know, we're going to do colorblindness or we're going to do multiculturalism, that there's failures in those approaches. You want to spell out part of your learning curve on that? You bet. Yeah. So, you know, I think post-civil rights movement, lots of white American families really began to move into this way of talking about race where we'll say things like, and I was certainly raised this way, look, we value equality and everybody is the same underneath their skin and we want to embrace all human beings. And that sort of quote-unquote colorblind messaging, I think, has come from a good place in some cases. But what white parents haven't reckoned with and haven't always understood is that, in fact, that messaging doesn't equip our children to actually recognize racism when they see it. And if our kids don't recognize racism, then they can't grow an anti-racist imagination. So colorblind approaches to race, it misses so many things. It's just not neurologically possible for our children. It also ignores what communities of color have told us over and over, which is that their racial identities matter to them and they're important to them. And it also kind of insidiously gives our kids a message that there's something wrong with color, in fact, or that they shouldn't be noticing difference. So, for example, we're often talking about, like, oh, that black person there, they're just like you or me. Don't hold their blackness against them. So it's got this insidious negative messaging built in. So colorblindness has really failed us as a strategy for anti-racism and justice. Valuing diversity or multiculturalism, I think more and more white American families are moving into that terrain. And I think in our educational systems, we're doing more of that. We need to value diversity. And that's improvement over colorblindness. But the problem with just talking about valuing diversity is that if we don't actively talk about injustice and justice, or we don't talk about racism and anti-racism, just valuing diversity doesn't help us raise white children who can be good allies for justice. And it's also our white children, our white youth, they know in some way, shape, or form that they are experiencing unjust systems. And so if we don't talk about anti-racism with them, they don't really know what to do with the part where they are saying or being taught to value difference, but they are also unjustly benefiting from unjust systems. So their white racial identity becomes this kind of strange conundrum-filled place that if they don't get some mentoring and support about, they can, you know, eventually some of our youth sort of disconnect from the diversity project or disconnect 
from the value of celebrating difference because they don't really know what to do with the part where they're white and that's not the same kind of difference as being black or being Latino or being Asian American. And so those ways, colorblindness and multiculturalism have just some very serious gaps that do not equip white children, white youth, white pre-professionals in moving into truly diverse and racially just postures in the world. And so we've just got to develop a different discourse. You know, language is so tricky, so difficult, because there are definitions of things which are good. And I have to admit, my own reaction when you talked about the attitudes people have, colorblindness, there is a statement, as you said, which is very valuable, that is, all people are equally loved, equally loved by God in religious language, right? Everybody is valuable. Yes. That kind of colorblindness is good. I mean, that's that's a noble yes. thing. The word discrimination is one of those tricky words because mostly I think now when we think of discrimination, we think of people who are exhibiting their bigotry and prejudice, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. That they're discriminating against someone. Whereas if I look at a plate of food and I see something I like, like um like cheese, because I'm from Wisconsin, and I look at the plate and I see Brussels sprouts, which I like least. I'll eat them, but I, I, I'm not that. I come from a family of twelve kids. We had to eat everything. So, I mean, I discriminate. I have a discriminating palate, right? And that doesn't mean that I make a difference. So, seeing or making a difference is crucial. And uh, too often, uh, we don't realize when we're doing one or the other. A lot of people say, "Well, yeah, I see that black." Are, are less good people than white people. Well, that's, some, that's a difference that people are making. Where did you first run into racism? I mean, you start out with a story in your book about, what, you're six years old, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure I ran into racism long before even I was the age of six, but my first conscious memory of knowing there was something about race that was significant was in first grade, and I was in Denver Public Schools and we were under mandated busing for desegregation when I was in public schools in Denver in the 70s. And so in first grade, I was in a very multiracial classroom. This was true all the way through sixth grade. One day I was out in the hallway, and my one of my white friends came up to me and said, Hey, Jenny, we need to start a white girls club. And I think I must have looked confused because she went on to say, You know, because there's only six white girls in this class. And I, I remember sort of having this moment of aha, like, oh, looking at my, my arm and thinking, wow, well, she's right. I am a white girl, <laughs> you know. And just at that moment, our white teacher walked by and she overheard this conversation and she snapped it off immediately. And she said, girls, I don't ever want to hear you talking like that again. You know, I loved my teacher. I wanted to do the right thing. I sort of knew we'd some, done something bad and wrong. I was embarrassed. I didn't know what it was, but I, you know, my six-year-old brain knew there was something loaded about this notion of race or difference, but I didn't know what it was. So I just kind of shut down in a part of me. And, you know, what's interesting about that story is that I don't think that was racism. I think, you know, that was a developmentally normal observation that was happening between two white girls in a first grade class who had adults in their lives who were not talking with them about difference. And my teacher was probably coming from a place of thinking something bad was happening and wanting to make, you know, sort of nip it at the bud. But what what she did was by imposing her adult anxiety about race and her fear that what was happening was racist, she made us sort of swallow and sublimate that sort of observation in ways that set us up 
as we grew to then, you know, be in places where racism was happening and not have any language or development or experience talking about racism in ways that could help us navigate those spaces. So, you know, I was in multiracial high school and was in white classes, so there was racism there because I was in white classes and kids of color in this very multiracial high school were in non-accelerated classes. I knew something was up, but I didn't know what it was. Well, now I know it was racism, but you know, as a high schooler, I didn't have anyone sort of talking through that with me, let alone helping me challenge it as a high schooler. And so that's the missing piece that many white children and youth grew up with, and I certainly did as well. But I didn't have language or analysis of that until my 20s, which is far too late. Yeah, it is very difficult to, and when you've got a substrate that you've built upon that includes racism and white guilt and prejudice and of course, those all serve some purpose in human development, and sometimes it's positive and sometimes it's negative. I hope before we finish this visit today, Jennifer, that we can talk about a positive way for white people, for white children to value their identity. And you talk about that in Raising White Kids, and I think it's such a valuable conversation to have because there is so much white guilt. There is so much negativity. If you're white, you're racist. If you're a colored person, then you're a victim of racism. And victimhood is not a good place to come from, and neither is white supremacy or white privilege. So it's such a thorny path, and you weave through it very very well in raising white kids, bringing up kids in a racially unjust America. How old are your kids now? My children are eight and 10. So you still haven't gone through the teenagers with them, which is a great learning curve time. Do you think you're ready for it? Well, I don't know if I'm ready for teenagehood. I'm not sure I was ready to be a parent when I had kids, but you know, the abstract is always much easier than the actuality of it. But what I do know is that whether or not I'm ready, I do know that my children, we already have an ongoing conversation about race and about justice in our home on these issues. And so as the landscapes they participate in get more and more complicated because, you know, they'll be in larger and larger environments with teenage lives flowing through them and all the things that come with the teenage years, and they'll become even more and more socially and politically aware, I hope. We already have a conversation about racism flowing in our home, and so I do think we are ready to journey together and sort of face whatever things we have to learn next about how you raise anti-racist committed white teenagers. Um, I don't know exactly how that will go, but I know that my kids already assume that this is a conversation we are in together. And I, in that sense, I'm, I think we're ready because I've practiced in this enough times now saying, you know what, I actually don't know the answer to that question, but let me think about it and let's talk about this again, which I think is the number one skill or tool to have in a parenting toolbox when it comes to talking about race with white children. In that sense, I think I'm ready, but I don't know what it's going to look like. One of the postulates maybe for learning well about how to raise wise kids is to recognize that we don't know answers, that learning only happens when people admit that they don't know things. And I think the certitude that many people have about race and identity probably prevent learning. So have you been able to chip away at that in yourself? Have you had that certainty that you balanced? I mean, you didn't grow up, as you mentioned, 
mentioned from your six-year-old experience, you weren't raised being able to talk about race. How did that change so that you were able to learn? That's a really important question. For me, yeah, I was not raised having any of these conversations, even though I was all the way through high school in very multiracial school settings. What happened in my journey was that in my college years, when I was still in a very conservative Christian environment, I went to a conservative Christian college in the period of time where I, as I said, when we started thinking and and learning and engaging this question around, okay, God is a God of love, which means God is a God of justice, I found myself reading books by liberation theologians, especially James Cone, who just passed away last year, in fact, who wrote many books, including Black Theology of Liberation. And what happened when I read James Cone's work is that I realized, oh, yes, there's this whole spiritual theological tradition that not only claims but makes, you know, deeply substantive arguments about why God has a heart for justice. And Cone talking about a God of justice in the context of race in the United States profoundly makes the argument that, well, God is black, and Jesus must be black, you know. And, and <laughs> yes. <laughs> when I read Cone, you know, all of these experiences I had had, starting with that first grade experience, all the way through high school, where I knew something was wrong in my high school, but I didn't know what, Cone's analysis and his theological arguments just clicked for me as a Christian. And so what happened in my own story is that I, in this very audacious middle-class white way said, well, I'm going to go to Union Theological Seminary and study with James Cone. And I did. I mean, I went, I, you know, I picked up and went to Union. And what happened in my life at Union is that I was in a community, a theological community, that there were many, many African-American Christians in particular, but also Latino Christians. And I showed up there as this white woman saying things like, well, yes, of course I believe that God is black and Christ is black. And these students were engaged in justice work, were engaged theologically and critically, you know, in thinking about justice. And in that community, basically, the message I received was, hey, you know what, that's great. And yes, God is God of justice. But for you as a white American, to just claim that has to look different than a black community talking about God is black. And what does that mean for you as a white person? And that period of time in my life was a challenging time. It was difficult. It took me a while to find other white folks, and there weren't that many of them, even when I did find them, who had journeyed through that, who had stayed committed to the difficult work of learning a different way of seeing race and understanding race as a white person when you've not had explicit anti-racist teaching and mentoring for 25 years. And I learned to do that work and have that conversation and think about race as a white person in the context of a very black and brown community. And that was critically important because I really had to relearn so much about what I thought I knew. And I also had to develop the emotional resiliency and commitment to continuing to learn when I would and did inevitably make mistakes, make racist mistakes and do racist things to people I was in community with because I hadn't learned well. So that period of my life in my 20s is when I think I was kind of in a crucible of learning and exploring and trying to understand how as a white person to have a different understanding and and ability to talk about race and racism. But 
the piece where I was doing that deeply accountable to people of color really matters to me, and it continues to matter to me. When I think about my work now, the most important community to assess it for me is black communities, Latino communities, Asian American communities. It's when those people in my life both personally and professionally say, this is good work, that I sort of trust that even when I still will make mistakes or continue to do so, that I'm staying accountable to the communities that I, in my heart, am committed and accountable to in my work. And so I think that piece matters greatly to me. I can see why it would matter very much. There's a piece which I feel a little bit uncomfortable with. I still haven't reconciled myself to how to look at it properly. And that is, we recognize that as whites, we can't tell people of color what their experience is. Our job is to listen, right? Mm -hmm. That's crucial. And you bring this out really well in Raising Right Kids. But there's the other part which I'm not quite sure what to do with. And this certainly came up when you were talking with your kids. It's like, how can I be proud of being white? Because, you Mm -hmm. know, black pride is good. White pride? Huh. And if we have to listen to black experience, we also have to listen to white experience. But that gets devalued in the conversation because we are the dominant race in this country. So could you talk about the ins and outs, the vagaries, the things you're clear about in that? Sure. There's a few different things that are important that emerge about in response to your question. And one is that it is complicated and part of the reason we struggle in conversations, especially with multiculturalism, for example, is that, yes, white Americans do need to listen to, learn from, appreciate, and respect black pride, for example, or like Black Lives Matter or Black is Beautiful. And it's not a parallel to white. As you say, you can't and you and what we, we can't and we need not say things like, well, white is beautiful or white lives matter. And the reason for that is not because I, as an individual person who is also white, don't have innate dignity and don't have innate value that should be respected as a human being. I do. But black pride has emerged, for example, out of a collective ongoing struggle, a political struggle, a culturally creative process, a generative movement that in and of itself, a deep core threat of it was and continues to be resistance to white supremacy. I mean, Black identity, like capital B Black, didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of this ongoing, collective, sustained, creative struggle against white supremacy. White identity has not emerged in the same way. Collectively and over time, white identity has largely been a racial identity of complicity in the face of white supremacy, whether explicitly, actively sort of participating in it or if not actively doing that, largely being willing to apathetically benefit from the injustices that white supremacy has yielded and continues to yield in this country. And so part of how we get off on the wrong foot is when we misunderstand that black and white are somehow parallel identities. They are not. And so on the one hand, we as white people do need to be able to talk about our experiences and we need to be able to process those experiences in order to understand how being formed and shaped in unjust systems has made it difficult for us to know what anti-racism looks like or to 
find our way to active postures of resistance. We've got to be able to process those experiences and talk about our relationship with whiteness. But it's a different matter to assume or expect that, for example, let's just talk about black communities. Black communities need and should sit and listen to those experiences because black people, Latino people, are constantly hearing about and living with and navigating the experiences that white people have in the United States, including when it comes to about race. They have no choice because they're still, we are all living in this unjust system where white communities are sort of the dominant racial group. And so it's just like this, this paradigm where we think that the dialogue needs to be multiracial and we all need to equally hear and learn from each other, it puts us in these postures that are just not quite reflective of how the social structures have set us up to be stratified. And so it's just not a parallel that, that sort of works. And so, for example, white guilt, that we need to understand that white guilt, yes, it's a normal response. When I believe in equality, and I start to realize I live in a world that is not only unequal, but actually gives me benefit at the expense of others through that inequality. White guilt is a totally normal response for that. A response to that is actually predictably a predictable developmental response. But what I need to do as a parent is think, okay, whereas I, Jen Harvey, I sat in my 20s experiencing and kind of wallowing in white guilt, not knowing how to get out of that. What I want to be saying and teaching and mentoring with my 7-year-old, my 8-year-old, my 9-year-old is, hey, yes, we are white. We have inherited these legacies of racism. We have ancestors who did horrible things. That might, even in my 8-year-old, generate some feelings of guilt. I mean, it has. You know, I've had conversations with my daughter where she said, did European Americans only ever do bad things? You know, and what I've said to her is, you know what, European Americans on this land base have overwhelmingly, if we talk about Native peoples and people of African descent, there's been this overwhelming history of violence and harm. And yes, our ancestors participated in that. But also, H, also, we as European-American descended people, we have then the ability and the responsibility to choose against that and to work for justice now and to be anti-racist European-American people. And that's the move through white guilt that I want my eight-year-old to already see as a possibility for her. And so that's a little different than saying just be proud of being white because in and of itself there isn't something kind of to be proud of collectively, right? In contrast to black identity, there's lots to be proud of there. I can be proud of individual white people who have stood up for justice and those people do exist, but as a collective identity, that really has not yet been a thing in the United States. But I can teach my daughter that I want her to feel good in her body. I want her to feel good in her moral, spiritual commitment. I want her to feel like because she's embodied as a white person, that doesn't mean she's innately evil, and that she as a white person can actively create an identity that is committed to justice-seeking, justice actions, and in and of itself, that is becomes a part of who she is as a white American who will still continue to benefit until we genuinely create a just system, which is a long way off, but that we can fight for that every day. And that in and of itself is a way of being white in the world, even if it's a way that we haven't yet grown to the degree that we must as a quote-unquote white American community. 
And folks, you're just getting a little taste of the wonderful things that Jennifer Harvey says in Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America, which is why I have her here today for Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website where you'll find links to Jennifer Harvey. One of her websites you might want to track down is RaisingWhiteKids.com. Find more about her at JenniferHarvey.org. They're all on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. So just come to find my links to her and to my other guests from the past 14 years. Also on the site, there's a place to post comments. I love hearing from you. One of the most important things that we can do in life is listen. So please post comments and help me be a good listener. There's also a place to donate to Northern Spirit Radio. Click donate to do that. This full-time work is supported by listeners, not by the government and not by corporations. And that means I'm free to say things that perhaps I couldn't in another society, in another context. And so please support us to keep our freedom to listen deeply and to share strong voices like that of Jennifer Harvey. Also remember to support your local community radio stations. Alternative media is so very, very important. And so Please support those community radio stations and get the alternate voice and music out there. Jennifer Harvey, besides having her degree from Union Theological Seminary, teaches as a professor of religion at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. American Baptist is the context she identifies with now, though she started from conservative branch. And I'm wondering, you talked at one point, Jennifer, about somehow finding a middle between the conservative Baptists of your upbringing and the American Baptists, which tends to be on the liberal end of things, is certainly in the Baptist universe. How is the truth that you speak now and that you teach now at Drake and to your kids and to the world, how is that resonant with the truth that's embraced both by conservative Baptists and the liberal Baptists? In terms of how the truth, as I'm sort of stumbling to try and live it and speak it, is affiliated with the sort of liberal part of my religious experience, which I would sort of locate in the American Baptist world. You know, if we talk about sort of my theological beliefs, thinking about equipping, teaching, mentoring, raising white children to choose anti-racism in a society that is saturated with racism that constantly benefits them, that's deeply aligned with the heart of the gospel, as I understand it, in which, you know, Jesus was unabashedly aligned with poor, occupied peoples in Palestine as a working-class person. And I think the heart of the gospel is a call to love of one's neighbor in social systems, like the one that Jesus lived in, where oppression is everywhere and it, it just abounds. And so in that sense, I feel like the work that I'm doing as a, both a professor at Drake, but also as an activist and also as a writer and a mom, is sort of seeking to be aligned with that kernel of the gospel as I understand it. And I think that there are many church communities, liberal church communities, including many American Baptists, United Church of Christ, Unitarians, in the sort of liberalish part of mainline Christian communities that understand the sort of work of justice to be about our existence as human beings and in, in you know in Christian spaces 
to be aligned with what the gospel call is about. And so I think in many American Baptist contexts, including the church I pastored in New York in the late 90s, as you know, on the staff, I wasn't the senior minister, we were constantly wrestling with what does it mean to be a people of justice in an unjust world. And so there's many Christian liberal communities for whom what I'm doing, I think, is giving kind of sociological tools to further that work of the gospel. Having said all of that, I would say that if I think about the conservative-ish environment that I was raised in, I mean, I was raised in a world where James Dobson was giving parenting advice on Saturdays. And I think that the way I think about race, the way I think about justice, the community I came from would find this way of thinking about our work in the world as Christians speak somewhat anathema, quite frankly, because for me, the sort of bridge point between conservative Baptist worlds that I came from to liberal American Baptist worlds was a journey where I had to first sort of recognize that in the conservative Baptist world that I was raised in, I was devalued as a woman, as a female person. My relationship with God as a woman was not seen as, as sacred or as worthy as the relationship with God that men could have. And so feminism became important to me in my college years. There was no discourse about racism. Certainly now as an out lesbian person, I mean, homophobia was everywhere in that world. And so I just don't think, you know, the way I think and talk about race is not aligned with the community, the way the community that raised me thinks and talks about race. And in fact, in many ways, if we look at the political climate now, that community has gone on to become among the most politically visible supporters of this very explicitly sort of white nationalist political rhetoric we're all swimming in, the conservative world that birthed me. They're like, the, you know, some of the strongest supporters of what's happening in the country right now, which I find, you know, devastating and terrifying. So, yeah, I, I think that's the way I would talk about it is that, I, you know, those worlds feel really different to me. And one of them embraces the work I'm doing and one simply mostly doesn't. And that's how I would sort of map that out, I think. You know, I have to give you a shout out. The American Baptists are particularly dear to my heart for two reasons. In college, I had a friend, a woman whose parents were American Baptists, and so I particularly valued the, the way they were working for peace and justice in the world. And the Quaker meeting that I'm part of here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, for 12, 14 years, something like that, we were hosted, our meeting, we rented rooms from the American Baptist Church. They were happy to take in Quakers, whereas other denominations might have had doubts about us because we just don't right. toe the lines of anything. So, <laughs> so I'm particularly grateful to the American Baptists and well aware of the difference between the different denominations of Baptists. So kudos to those groups who continue to do the wonderful work in the world. One of the things that you talk about in the book is the difference between equality and equity. And I'd like you to just explain what the difference is. There's, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have thought a bit about it, but a lot of people just are completely unaware of the difference degree of work that we need to do to give people a fair shake. When people start two miles behind someone else on a one-mile race, golly, they didn't win. I wonder why that is. Explain about equity and equality and what relationship that has to racism in America, and particularly to raising white kids. It's such an important question because the language of equality is both important, but it's also kind of 
seductive and misleading because, you know, when we say I value equality, what we actually mean, I think, is that we believe all people have equal value, equal worth, equal dignity innately. And that's a belief that I embrace. I believe and I value equality. I believe in equality. I believe we are all equal. But to say that is not the same thing, and this is where we get confused often in white communities, as saying and being able to acknowledge that we live in a world where inequity is the reality. And so we have to distinguish equality from equity because even if we all, in a sort of principled way, or perhaps we located in our sort of design by God, say that we have innate equality, we do not live in a world where equity is real yet. And so if you sort of take the value of equality and you apply it to everyone in the same way, in a world where, as you said, some people are starting two miles behind or four miles behind, not because of how innately skillful they are or intelligent they are or hardworking they are, but because the systems we are living in historically and to this very day hold some people back, then equality, when you just apply a kind of same treatment in that context, will end up producing more and more injustice. And so we have to talk about equity where we say, okay, if we want equal outcomes, we actually have to figure out the way in which you level the playing field. I mean, you can't expect that communities who have been boxed out of housing market, have been boxed out of Social Security, have been, you know, have experienced structural impediment to getting to an equal starting point today because what went on as recently as 20, 30 years ago in this country, you can't expect communities to just catch up on their own. And that's what we're expecting if we only want to talk about equality. And so equality is about sameness. Yes, we all have the same innate dignity. Equity is about needing to figure out where and how in the social environment we have to, again, level the playing field or, or change the starting line so that it actually reflects the gap that we need to make up as a society because of what's been imposed on communities of color. And distinguishing those, I can't say enough about how important it is we distinguish those because, and it, this is a point, I think, where white parents will often say to our kids, hey, everybody's equal. Well, what we mean is we value everybody that everybody is actually not experiencing equality in society. And so we've got to sort of tease that out with our kids if we don't want them to think, well, we just treat everybody the same and we'll just be fine. In fact, we will not just be fine if we treat everybody the same because injustice will continue to have its way then. There's a number of stories that you share that I think are so compelling, so powerful. Some of them come because your family, your cousins, you have in your family, in the us circle of family, includes people who are of color. Mm -hmm. And that's been a learning experience for you as well. Any choice tidbits you care to share right now, Jennifer, about how you've learned from having the us of family include the other? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what I've learned, so um, I have two nephews who are black, my sister-in-law is black, another of my siblings, her husband is Mexican, and their children are biracial and bilingual. And I think what I've learned or what I, what it sort of keeps central for me is that you know, these issues around racism, they, they are never abstract for me or my children. I think one of the 
real challenges with parenting for anti-racism and, and for white parents is that many times, I think, white adults in the United States, we live very segregated lives in America, very segregated lives. And white Americans, very few of us, the data shows this, are in meaningful relationships with black people, with Latino people. And that has its own historical causes, but it deeply impacts our ability and our willingness to simply get brave and realize we've got to figure this out no matter what. And so when an issue, when a justice issue is an abstraction for us, it's just harder to mobilize and to prioritize the learning that we need to do. So, for example, in my family, because, I, you know, I hope it wouldn't be abstract to me anyway. I was committed to these issues and I've been doing this work well before my siblings and I started having kids. But the fact that my children are growing up because they live in the same city with their cousins who are African-American, they're growing up with, you know, these two cousins that they are very close to who are themselves black and they're all about the same ages. It's never abstract for me. The fact that my nephew is having to learn about how complicated police can be means there's no remove for me. It's not difficult for me to understand that my white 10-year-old also needs to be learning that because if they're buddies, and he's learning that, but she doesn't, then what am I doing to their capacity for friendship as they continue to grow, right? And so I think that's what I've learned the most is that when race and racism are not abstractions for us, we decide to get brave and to take the risk of teaching our kids things that we're not exactly sure how to teach them because we're talking about beloved people in our life whose lives are at stake in this system. And I think that is also something my kids understand, even though they understand it in their 8- and 10-year-old way. So that's been really significant in our journey as a family. Some of my best learning about race uh, came about because I lived two years in West Africa, in Togo, where I was a Peace Corps volunteer. And mind you, I recognize I was still privileged. I was a rich person. I'm an educated person. I was a teacher at a high school, which was a place of prestige. So there's no question in my mind that I was privileged. But I was the white person in my village at a certain point, the white person. And so things look very different when you're that kind of minority. And I wasn't pulling the strings in the town. Also, having traveled to Kenya and spent time in both the Congo and Rwanda, I'm well aware of the, I think, universal possibility for humanity to have uh, prejudice, racism. Uh, We find such ways to hurt one another and establish our power in the circle of us that excludes other. So I've learned by sitting in those situations. Have you traveled abroad? Have you seen race in other countries? Because I think that by seeing in other places, there's the possibility of seeing where maybe the United States could get its act together because we've had such a horrendous, you know, 400 plus years of slavery and oppression of people of color in this country. Other countries seem to have gotten past that much better. So have you traveled and seen this or are your studies all within the United States? You know, my expertise and my scholarship is very, very U.S. focused. So I also have traveled a lot in my life. So for example, like probably the most significant consciousness learning I did was through traveling in Central America in the same period of time where I was sort of coming to understand and engage with liberation theology. 
But, you know, I do, and I've and I've not been there, but I've read volumes and, and carefully looked at the South African experience. And in some ways, I think it really has a lot to say about the U.S. American experience because of the history of colonization and colonialism. But I think that you know one of the things about the differences that that you were just describing, for example, there's at least a couple of layers. And one is that there's profound learning that comes when you are in a situation where you're the, the only in a space, you know, and all of a sudden, like, you're a white person in, uh, you know, a country in Africa, in a village context where the only white person there, there is this sort of profound decentering of one's own body and whiteness that just doesn't usually happen for white Americans in the United States. And it's actually, so I think there's profound learning that can come from that. And I, I certainly agree with you that the U.S. and white U.S. Americans, we have no corner on the market of prejudice or othering behaviors or making assumptions about people based on difference. But I, I do think that that is also a universal kind of human tendency, though I think it's also one we can constantly work against. But, you know, on the flip side, the other layer of that is what's so complicated is that colonialism and the legacies of, of enslavement that are so formative to the United States, there's so few parts of the world that have been untouched by that as well. So even if we talk about the continent of Africa, if I travel in parts of the continent as a, as a white U.S. American, you know, I might be the sort of minority in a moment, and yet those legacies of imperialism and colonialism and enslavement also are present there as well. And so there's all these complexities about that, and we can see in places like Brazil where these sort of still layers of stratification based on color that come out of that same legacy of the Middle Passage and the so-called era of discovery, which, of course, wasn't really discovery. European expansion has really like left their mark on the globe in many ways that are really complex that we're going to be living with for centuries. I actually wish everyone could have the experience that I did in Togo. I'd go in a village, you know, and there are kids who had never seen a white person before, and they yeah. see me and uh, see a little baby cry because this creature looks so strange. Or their attitude might be, I want to touch and feel its hair. And, of course, you know, white people can sometimes act that same way towards blacks in this country. And, you, you know, yeah. it feels kind of demeaning and it feels intrusive. It feels a little little bit unclean sometimes to have that and again since I was coming from a place of privilege it wasn't as threatening to me as it would be for someone who's located in our society as a place of considerably less privilege but it's still it's such a learning experience to have that happen yeah it absolutely is yes Back in 1976, my last year at college, I went to the Black Student Union for Black History Month. They had a presentation going there. And I observed something that was really funny. I went there with my friend Darlene, who's black. And there was this presentation, uh, a film strips shown, and there was discussion afterwards. And Darlene said to the the man who was leading the discussion he says how about worrying about the rights of women because you know we're worried about black empowerment but what about women and he said well you know yeah that's important too but what we'll have to do is we'll have to lift up blacks in general and then we can deal with the women's question i can imagine there's a, a heart within you that would be outraged at that thought but it's still very common <laughs> 
<laughs> what are your thoughts about those kind of contentions? I think probably there's a, a good case to be made that the most impressed, the most embittered people of this continent are the Native Americans, the people who were here before the Europeans arrived. They lost essentially the continent and a vast percentage of their lives. So I recognize that, you know, we all get raised up together, but that there's still within oppressed societies, there's a tendency for some people to say, well, I got mine, Jack, and I'm okay. How do you talk to your kids about such differences? So the fact that uh, you and your partner, because you're two women who are married, that's one kind of oppression you have, and people who are Jewish in this country face another kind of oppression. How do you bring that together when talking to your kids? Because it, it's not just black and white. There's so many other hues that can distract or enhance or perhaps modify the discussion. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I want to answer that by telling you this story that is also part of it in the book about a conversation I had with my eldest a couple of years ago where she blew my mind because she had had this, I had watched this experience happen where we had her at a soccer camp and it was co-ed and I watched her from afar kind of jostling with this boy at one point and I heard her from afar say, hey, stop it. Hey, that's not nice or something like that. And I could tell she was kind of upset. And later I asked her about it and she told me that he had been cutting in front of her in line and saying he could do that because he was a boy and and it made her mad and she had sort of, you know, challenged him on it. And so in the moment, I didn't use the word sexism and I just, I said to her, I said, wow, you know, that you're right, that was really mean and it's hard to stand up for yourself sometimes. I'm really proud of you that you stood up for yourself. And so we talked about it, but I didn't use the word sexism because she was little. And I think I had some worry about, like, you know, making her worry that people were going to treat her differently because she was a girl. But then I was kind of bothered about my own reaction and not sure if I had covered it enough. And I decided to circle back at bedtime. And I said to her, remember when, you, you know, we were talking about that thing that happened today? And I said, there's actually a word for what that boy was being. And that word is sexism. And I explained to her in as best I could in a way she understood that sexism wasn't just about him being mean in that moment, which he had been mean, but that he, it was this way of thinking that girls aren't as good as boys or that the rules should be different for boys and girls or, you know, all of, you know, the, the things that, you know, show up when sexism is happening. So I told her that, and then I told her that that meant that when she had stood up to him, she wasn't just standing up for herself as a girl, but she was also standing up for all girls when she challenged sexism and that that was really a powerful, important thing to do. And what happened in the conversation and what shocked me to no end was that she went on to respond by asking me about Rosa Parks. And she said, is that kind of been like what, she couldn't remember Rosa Parks' names at first, but she said, you know, what, what that woman on the bus was doing. And I said, yeah, Rosa Parks. She refused to move on the bus because she was standing up for black people. And then my daughter said to me, oh, and you know what? She was black and she was a woman. So that was probably extra hard for her to do. <laughs> and so in, in that moment, like she put together that there were these, you know, multiple systems. So I haven't yet sort of talked with my kids and use the words of like intersectionality or talked about how, you know, when we're working for justice, like you need to put the concerns of black women, disabled, lesbian, trans people at the center of what you call for when you call for justice. Because otherwise, if you elevate a community or work for justice and you don't put the needs and the demands of those who are most oppressed 
at the center of that, you always end up pursuing justice in ways that, you know, works best for the most privileged within a group. But, you know, we haven't sort of had that conversation. But I think because we do talk about isms, you know, we talk about, like, same-sex families and, and families like ours or queer families, you know, not getting fair treatment, or we talk about, you know, immigration and we talk about the kinds of things that are happening and being said right now about immigrants. That I think, again, back to that teenager moment, I think we're going to be ready to increasingly get complex about the ways we talk about organizing for justice because we are sort of having those, my kids know there's all these different ways that unfairness is happening and, and unkindness and violence is happening around identities in our world. And so as we continue to have that conversation, I think they will build sort of like my kid did when she was, you know, about seven or eight. They'll build this sort of connection points and we'll continue to support them in building those connection points. As you can tell, listeners, Jennifer Harvey is sharing with us her personal learning, her higher aspirations in talking about raising white kids, bringing up children in racially unjust America. For websites, remember to go to RaisingWhiteKids.com, and there's also JenniferHarvey.org. Those links are on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. We've only scratched the surface in terms of what the content of this book, and she also has other books like Dear White Christians for Those Longing for Racial Reconciliation, Whiteness and Morality Disrupting White Supremacy from Within. She's considered this from so many different directions, and what's particularly valuable about this book is the experience of how do we share it with future generations? How do we pass these lessons on? How do we nurture a future for this country? And that's what I try and highlight here on Spirit in Action. We want to find a way to heal the world, and Jennifer Harvey is right in the thick of that work. I do wish you, Jennifer, great luck in working with your teenagers. I know that it's a learning curve for all of us who go through that, when we're teens and when we're parents of teens. I'm sure that you've laid a great groundwork for a bright future for you and your kids and for this society that we're part of. Thank you for bringing healing to the world and making it the central passion of your life. Mark, thank you. I love that. Let's heal the world together. Thanks so much for having me. Jennifer Harvey is, again, a professor of religion at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, with her degree from Union Theological Seminary. Find more on the websites I listed. There's also excerpts that we weren't able to include in this broadcast on the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website. Go to see those bonus excerpts to catch more snippets and stories that we weren't able to include in the broadcast. I want to say thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. (laughs) 